1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today we'll be talking to Gerd Gigerentzer about the new book, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World, Why Human Intelligence Still Beats Algorithms how to stay in charge in a world populated by algorithms that beat us in chess, find us romantic partners, and tell us to turn right in 500 yards. Well, Gerd, welcome to the show.
1: Galina, good to be with you.
0: So can you tell us, what do you do?
1: Oh, so I'm a psychologist by training, and I study how people deal with risk and uncertainty. (laughs) And I also, train professionals like doctors and lawyers and judges and managers to understand better uh, uncertainties and also how to deal with this in a more rational way.
0: And how did you get interested in studying psychology and this field specifically?
1: <laughs> oh, oh. Psychology always interested me, and uh, decision-making, I think it's something that everyone does anyhow, but not always with much thinking. And uh, in an earlier career, I was a musician, and I played jazz uh, uh, and Dixieland and other things, and, and uh, at some point I had to make a decision whether to stay on the stage or to dare to uh, try an academic career. And uh, so I observed myself how I was doing this decision. And for me, uh, staying on the stage and continuing music, that was the uh, less risky decision because I knew for many years, and also uh, I earned many, much more money at this time of and. Uh, uh, daring to do an academic career was a risky option, so I took the risky option and it worked.
0: And along your career journey, did you have mentors that were really supportive of you?
1: Oh yes, um, uh, uh, people and also uh, yeah, friends um, and also good books. So reading, is always something that I enjoy to uh, be, to exchange ideas and to learn huh? something that is not so f- frequent because many people, they uh, decide to be part of a group and then they defend the values of the group and not really interested in arguments, pro and con, and also in changing their ideas. and going into a kind of life of ideas and challenges. And that's what I think makes us human.
0: And from your experience, what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers?
1: <laughs> well, so, the, um, the, uh, so what I have learned from my research on decision-making is to make decisions faster, because there usually is so much uncertainty. And even you, if you deliberate and deliberate and deliberate and take another week and another month, usually not farther. And it's also a kind of courage that one needs to make a decision and take the responsibility.
0: Oh, I love it. All right. So, your latest book is How to Stay Smart in a Smart World. Why Human Intelligence Still Beats Algorithms, and how did you come to writing it?
1: So uh, the background is my interest in uh, risk and uncertainty, and I have seen in the analog world that people often know so little about the decisions they make. And it starts with everyday observations. For instance, uh, do you know what it means if you uh, hear or read that tomorrow the chance of rain is 30%? So Mm. 30% of what? I live in Berlin, Germany. Most Berliners think that it means it will rain tomorrow in 30% of the time, that is six to seven to eight hours. I also think it will rain in 30% of the area, so most likely not where I live. And most New Yorkers we have asked say, oh, it means something third, namely it will rain on 30% of the days for which the announcement was made, that is most likely not at all tomorrow. So uh, what the uh, meteorologists mean is what, what most New Yorkers think. Huh? So uh, thir- uh, it will rain in 30% of the days for which the uh, announcement has been made. Huh? And, uh, the, but they could communicate that clear, but it's not done. So this is just a very simple observation about a lack of risk literacy. And it becomes much more uh, important when, for instance, after 9-11, many people stopped flying and jumped in their cars. And I have analyzed the uh, traffic statistics. And in the year following 9-11, about 1,600 Americans, more than usual, lost their lives Mm. on the streets in the attempt to... Uh, yeah, to avoid the risk of flying. So every one of these people could have lived because after 9-11, flying was so safe and never before and never after. So these are just uh, uh, illustrations about risk literacy in the analog world. So I got interested, how is it in the digital world? And you find a similar lack of training, lack of concern, and uh, for instance the uh, most digital natives in a study of over 3,000 uh, high school students and undergraduates in California cannot tell hidden ads from real news or are taken in by the appearance of the website. and. Uh, Most do not know how to check the trustworthiness of sites and photos, and adults don't do much better. So, uh, So the book, How to Stay Smart in a Smart World, is its key message is, if we want to use smart technology, we need to get smart too.
0: All right, so let's dive into the nitty gritties of the book. And can we start with a very basic, so we know everybody is on the same page. Could you describe what is an algorithm?
1: <laughs> now, an algorithm is, uh, um, <clears throat> It's, for instance, if you have a, a, a simple mass manager, Uh, uh, operation like two and two means four. That's a kind of very simple algorithm. There are more complicated algorithms. There are basically two kinds. One is that you program into a computer an algorithm. And that could be what's uh, a statistical algorithm that just adds up a number of indicators, or it could be a deep neural network that learns by itself with reinforcement or without reinforcement. So algorithms have been always around and they are nothing new. And uh, we also need to understand what they can do and what I can not do.
0: So what is the state of the AI technology that we find today, especially integrated in our everyday life?
1: Yeah, so it's important to understand what algorithms can do and what they can't do. So it's a big illusion. So you may have read uh, bestseller books that tell you. So first, um, algorithms AI has beaten the best humans in chess and go. And second, computational power increases every couple of years. Therefore, the conclusion is that soon or even now already, AI can do everything that humans can do. That's an illusion. Mm. Computing power doesn't do the job. It just makes them the algorithms faster. And the key principle to understand that is what I call the small the small sorry <laughs> the key principle, the key principle to understand when algorithms work and when they don't work is the stable world principle. Mm. So in a stable, well-defined situation, algorithms, today's algorithms will be much better than we. Chess, Go are these well-defined situations. And uh, for instance, uh, routine work in industry. (laughs) So these algorithms are not tired, they don't get bored, and they're just faster than me. On the other hand, if there is uncertainty, if tomorrow is not like yesterday, then one can easily understand that big data, which is always from the past, doesn't help you very much if tomorrow is different. So for instance, big data has not uh, predicted or prevented, the financial crisis of 2008. Big data had uh, mispredicted that Hillary Clinton will win mm-hmm. and not Trump. Huh? So these are all situations where humans were involved. And here, in that situation, uh, complex algorithms are of little use. So that's a very simple insight. And So that helps you to get an idea when you can trust algorithms and when you should rather look uh, twice. And because much of algorithms are commercial and people want to sell you something. An illustration is uh, IBM's supercomputer Watson. Watson did an amazing job in the game Jeopardy. And Jeopardy is a well-defined game. And the rules of Jeopardy had even to be slightly changed so that Watson can do it. When he has done that, um the China uh, uh Rometti, the CEO of IBM, wanted to have Watson do the moonshot as she called it and do cancer therapy Mm. recommendations now the game Jeopardy is a fairly stable world but not cancer and cancer therapy and if uh, hospitals would have understood that they would have spare themselves from investing millions into IBM's Watson oncology, only to find out that it can't do what the PR department of IBM advertised. For instance, N.H. Uh, Anderson, one of the most respected cancer clinics in the US, wasted 62 million to IBM oh, wow. uh, until they found out that Watson is not the doctor or the miracle doctor that was promised. And at the end, uh, IBM said, oh, Watson is only the level of a first year medical student. So it was probably the best paid first year medical student ever. And uh, it's only the head of the uh, Allen Institute called, watson ibm's watson the donald trump of the ai industry so that's an example the same system can do amazingly things if you have a well-defined stable world but not in a world of uncertainty and the sources of uncertainty are humans or viruses and others
0: This is so interesting, and presumably these shortcomings were known for, well, fairly long time. So why and how did this technology start integrating in our everyday life where we have the humans, when we have the uncertainty?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, take again the example of IBM's Watson. The IBM's engineers knew that it doesn't work. (laughs) But the, the, uh, the advertising department nevertheless promised that it will work and IBM made lots of money. And those hospitals who wasted their time and on uh, uh, Watson services could have used this money for other things which have, would have really worked in healthcare. And, and one of the reasons why uh, uh, the, 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 this distinction is really known. So, or the question even asked, even ask, you know, where does say uh, a neural network, uh, uh, an artificial neural network work and where does it likely not work? Is because there is a kind of belief that uh, AI could do everything mm-hmm. and no technology can do everything. And it's a selling uh, 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 position.
0: So perhaps once we started understanding all of this, there are people who arose as a doomsday prophets, as you put it. <laughs> so what kind of arguments do these people have about the future about, te- uh, about the future of technology?
1: Yeah, so on the extreme, there are two kinds of people. One of the prophets of AI, and I believe that AI soon will do everything and we should surrender. And our that our digital assistant will morph into a super intelligence and tell us what we should do and basically run our lives. That's the one extreme. yeah. And it's, a, it's an, an idea that never will work. On the other side, there are people who have dupesies, uh fantasies, yeah. and think that AI will soon, yeah, yeah. Basically, have us humans on the leash um, or put us in a zoo and exhibit us <laughs> or maybe just eliminate us. Now, uh, both of these visions make the same error, in my opinion, they think that AI really can do everything. And that's not the case. So uh, there are a number of things that are unique to human intelligence, which AI cannot do. So that includes causal thinking. So already children, they pester you with questioning, why, why and why, huh? why? is the sky blue? Why do our neighbors have more money than we? Why do I have, have to eat broccoli? And uh, the uh, deep neural networks, they do correlations, not causes. Mm. Another difference is that uh, we have an intuitive psychology. Already children a few years old know that others have feelings, have intentions. A deep neural network doesn't know that. And next, we have an intuitive physics. So we know, for instance, that a solid object cannot go through another solid object, or that um, a car that, uh, that disappears behind a screen is not away, so it will probably come out on the other side. Huh? But uh, deep neural networks don't know all these things. Mm. And at the end, we are social. And uh, we are to that's to our best and also that's some of our um, yeah failures that we depend so much on the opinion of others. But that's how humankind uh, uh, got that far and there is we don't know how to make n- deep neural networks social so all of that what humans can do is often called common sense and that's the one thing that's most difficult to AI and also human intuition understanding that's the most difficult thing to do
0: so have there been attempts to create this kind of generalized intelligence in the artificial <laughs> <Yes>. system?
1: <laughs> attempts, yeah, but more claims yeah, mm. yeah bestseller books that that uh, you can just name them yeah by uh, Harari and others who like you know, the prophets of at, at the end. Uh, uh, these, uh, or, or by Kurzweilen, uh, that there will be singularities on other names. There's enough of that. But uh, these are usually not the people who, who built the, the machines. And the engineers are much more cautious about these claims. But the claims sell. And uh, people think about doomsday. And also these type of claims that AI will soon be better than everything, they hide the real problems. The real problems are that most of AI is military-driven or commercial-driven. And, uh, and that, for instance, be- behind AI, there are people, there are organizations who want us, for instance, control or run our lives. And also, uh, some of the real problems is the surveillance. Uh, power of AI. So, for instance, the uh, and that's commercial surveillance and governmental surveillance, and uh, that is something which worries me lots. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for instance, I-, I live in Berlin, where. Everyone still remembers the state surveillance by the Stasi in the former Eastern Germany, or earlier by the Gestapo in the Third Reich. Yeah? Just imagine that they would have had this technology. And also what's interesting is that the uh, technology, this is also a general principle in the book, How to Stay Smart. The technology is not just an assistant technology, It changes our values. And it also changes what we think uh, about, say, about privacy, about data protection. And uh, studies in many countries show that the idea of privacy is basically losing. It's running out. And people are just giving away data and don't worry very much what's being done with it. So for instance, um, most people buy smart TVs and sometimes you don't get any other TV anymore. But very few know that their smart TV may record every private conversation in your living room or bedroom. And it could be easily found out. For instance, Samsung's privacy policy read, please be aware that if your spoken words include personal or other sensitive information, that information will be among the data captured and transmitted to third parties. So who who is reading this <laughs> policies anymore and people don't know? Or think about, that already children get used to live in a world of surveillance. So take Mattel's Barbie doll. So the, the first generation of Barbie dolls, long time ago, it made young women just feel bad about their own body shape because they couldn't live up to Barbie. Then there was another generation in 1992, that could say a few sentences. Among the sentences was the following, math is hard, let's go shopping. So that gave gave young women the idea, not only that their body shape isn't right, but the determination of life is shopping, hmm? because they're not up to math, like boys being implied. And in 2015, Mattel came up with Hello Barbie. That is a Barbie doll that can actually uh, conduct a conversation with, say, the little girl. And the little girl who trusts the, the doll, its anxieties, its hopes, its feelings, doesn't know that the doll records everything it says, like the smart TV and sells it to the parents who can get a daily or a weekly report what their little girl said. Hmm. And also, it's used for advertising purposes, and algorithms uh, run over that to find out what kind of advertisement to uh, send that little girl. And advertisement also means that, hello, Barbie can actively conduct a conversation and it will conduct a conversation about products to be sold mm. and fashion to be worn and that is equally worrisome because uh, just like uh, little boys little girls use and develop their, fant- their imagination in playing, in role playing and now the doll takes that over and turns everything into products. Talk about products. So, now imagine the little girl at some point finds out that its beloved doll has spied on her and also the parents. Now, it might lose trust in the world, hmm. but something more fundamental could happen. That's what I call adapt to AI. So the little girl may not lose trust, but think, that's natural, being surveilled and spied on 24-7. And then we have a different world, uh, where people just have no idea of privacy anymore.
0: This is such a profound insight that we may start thinking about it like it is natural, like it is as it should be. Is this bad?
1: <laughs> yeah, but it's already happening. Mm. Um, so people give away the data just to nothing to pay and also they have little choice. So uh, in, in the United States, uh, a study showed that 80% of, of participants in these studies, so of Americans, said they were concerned about privacy, so 85%. If you are concerned, then you might be willing to pay for your privacy. So for instance, uh, Facebook or Google uh, get, they are paid, uh, Facebook gets 97%. Uh, of its income, of its revenue from, uh, from advertisement. So the alternative would be that we pay for Facebook. So if you're concerned about privacy, and 80% of Americans say uh, that how many of them are willing to pay a single dollar per month for privacy? Only 28%. The rest, 72% are not willing to pay even a dollar for privacy. See? And in Germany, where this entire history with this is Stasi and the Gestapo is there, it's not different. People are no longer, they complain still, but they're not willing to pay anything for privacy. And I did a little computation, calculation, what would it cost so how much would everyone have to pay who is on Facebook? So for the entire Meta, uh, 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 yeah, that has Facebook and Instagram and many things more in order to reimburse Zuckerberg for what he gets from advertising so that uh, he had no incentive anymore to find out whether you're pregnant, whether you're depressive, or whether you have a heart condition to target you in the right moment with some kind of advertisement. So what would it cost? So a simple calculation is it would cost $2 a month per uh, person. So that could be done. Huh? And we could Uh, change that but as I said before most people are no longer willing to pay anything they want to pay with the data and to understand how this is how these uh, tech companies work so think about a coffee house in in the city you live and this coffee house sells free coffee that's great isn't it Mm. go there and don't have to pay anything for your coffee, and you can talk with your friends and enjoy the time there. The only disadvantage is that uh, your the table where you have your coffee is bucked, you know, and there are video cameras on the walls who record every word you say and with whom and when one, and 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 when and uh, and also the. The room in the coffee house is full with salespeople who want to sell you personalized products and always interrupt you. And the salespeople are the customers of the coffee house, not you. You are the product to be sold to the salespeople, your attention and your time. And that's uh, an analogy to understand how Google, how Facebook and others function. And it's also an analogy to understand if you, what a solution could be. Yeah? Let's pay for our coffee and get the surveillance out hmm. and the interruptions out. And also the, the manipulations of people. In order to gear them into certain directions. So that's a viable alternative, but that would require that people start thinking about what's happening and also that governments dare to bite hmm, and to control the, um, yeah, it's mostly men, yeah, the few, uh, the handful of men who govern most of what's happening in the internet Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE.
0: But is this truly a solution? Because looking at the app store, for example, even apps that you pay for, they do collect a lot of your data and you cannot get, get out of it
1: yeah you would have of course you would have to get an idea or by a, a control yeah. that it's uh, that uh, facebook would stop uh, collecting the data they will have to collect some data for instance uh yeah i mean netflix is you pay for netflix yeah? it's collecting some data about what what kind of Uh, Movies you look, but Netflix does not collect data, whether you're pregnant, depressive, and other personal data. Mm. And uh, at the end, uh, and sells these to, uh, say, uh, health insurers, who will then increase the premium that you have to pay or will not accept you.
0: So then looking on more positive side of technology that we can have in our life. So what kind of examples are there of very good, successful implementation of these technologies for the benefit of society?
1: Okay, our world is full with great things, for instance. I couldn't talk with you if we wouldn't have digital technology. Hmm. And uh, as, a, uh, as a researcher, I... I, I find just the, the ability to quickly access, for instance, articles and to find out about uh, all kinds of things, it's just wonderful. And so there, is, and the, there was once the dream that the internet will bring information to everyone in the world and uncensored information So facts, not fakes. And uh, so that people could see through uh, what's happening in their country, corruption, uh, uh, crime, betrayal, governments that uh, are not there for the people, Mm
0: -hmm. but for
1: themselves. And that in part has happened. And we have had many examples where we can now, for instance, by someone who just took a video and sent it uh, over WhatsApp to to everyone, we can see if injustice is happening. But we also have uh, gotten a world of disinformation. And uh, that's, uh, uh, and here what we need to do is just uh, getting ourselves, smart, mm, and to see through the disinformation, and also to make governments, mm, put uh, uh, make, make them to stop uh, unnecessary exploitation mm. of peoples by decommodism. It's not the AI that's the problem. No, that's totally wrong discussion whether AI is good or, or, or bad. It's the people behind the AI. So Wikipedia is a wonderful example about a democratic idea about uh, collecting and disseminating information rather than a profit. Mm -hmm. And uh, and for instance, also the the two founders of of Google, hmm? and they started out and wrote an article in the late 90s about they wanted a greater scientific Uh, search engine and they were arguing against search engine. They got their monies by advertising because these are for the advertisers, not for the people. And then the dot-com crisis came and it turned around 180 degrees and made the most uh, successful advertising based search engine. So dreams change and it is Uh, time to start dreaming again and changing and not letting everything go down the road of uh, sleepwalking into surveillance.
0: This is really fascinating, and from psychological perspective, maybe you can shine some light on it. Why are all of all of these technologies that start off being so benevolent and you know with such bright future in in their inception turn out to be later on really capitalistic nightmares?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> The, it's 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 in people. So there are always people who try to do something for the general public without trying to be become the richest man on earth. But it also, is. and we will not be able to change that. But what we can do is to get smarter and understand what's going on and use the internet uh, in a way that it profits us and not just certain rich people.
0: Mm. So what would you like to see in the future? How should we monitor or approach this area on a personal level, but also on governmental level?
1: So the personal level, uh, that can start by uh, by we could train people to understand how to tell a fake from a fact. Mm -hmm and how to find out what's behind a website. And there are uh, a number of, I call these heuristics, so simple rules of thumb that can help you. For instance, here are two. If you want to, if you do a Google search or a search on another engine, and you want to find out Uh, and you see uh, a website, say, about minimum wage, and you find out whether that's really uh, a more scientific-oriented one, or maybe a PR industry, a PR institution is behind it that gets money from an interested party, to tell you. So how do you find out? For instance, in one study, most digital natives had no idea how to find out. They were looking at whether the website looks cool, for instance. And they began um, from the top and reading till the end, just as one reads a newspaper article. Digital technology allows us to use a very different technique that's called lateral reading. Mm. So what does that mean? So you read Uh, maybe the first paragraphs of the articles until you know what it's about. And then you don't continue. You leave the website and maybe go uh, about us and then go uh, search on different websites who is behind that organization. And that's called lateral reading. That's a technique that uh, fact-checkers, professional fact-checkers know and always do, but it is, according to one study, not known to 96% of digital natives in the US. Another very simple rule they can easily learn is uh, click control. So if you get a number of entries, don't click on the first one or the second one, but read the snippets and maybe don't click it uh, anyone in the first page and go in the second one. So the uh, many people still don't know that the first entries are not the most popular ones. They are also not the most relevant ones. But that those ones where uh, the search engine, uh, say Google, expects most income, mm-hmm. and for instance, because the advertisers uh, are yeah, they uh, paid most for that. And so these are some uh, rules on the personal level where you can learn to open your own eyes. And then there's another question, whether you want to really have a smart home and all this surveillance technology, what it brings you. And also another principle that one can learn is, look, the more I get dependent on my digital assistants, on my navigation system, the less I will be able to do these things myself because I'm lacking practice. And so there is, there is many things where we can then try. For instance, I use my navigation system in my car to go to some place I've never been. But the second or third times, I'll shut it down. and just to keep my spatial memory active to go there. And everyone can find things like that to practice. And on a, on a governmental level, we need uh, politicians that see through and that protect the citizens against commercial surveillance. And also that's much harder, state surveillance because many politicians are in interested party in that. So China is a well-known example for a so-called social credit system, and you may have heard of that. So it's like FICO, which measures your financial uh, trustworthiness. Uh, the social credit system is about everything. It's financial, it is legal, It is. Uh, it covers everything of your social and political life and puts everything together into one number.
0: Mm.
1: You may have seen the Netflix series, Downfall, where everyone has a credit, a social credit value and, uh, and the social credit system is slightly different because it's the government who determines what's being counted and what value you get. In the Western world, uh, we have uh, data brokers like Axioms who similarly collect all the data that you can get about you, and one would just need to put them together into a single value, and then we would have the same system as in uh, in China. In China, it's in an experimental state, 44 cities uh, experimenting with social credit systems and those with High value, they, for instance, they get preferential treatment in hospitals, and those with low values have to wait mm. in the queue, and uh, they may get tax uh, reductions if they're companies, and those with low values, they may not be allowed to purchase flight tickets, or their children may not be allowed to to enter the best private schools. And then you might think twice, whether you're not better accommodate and adapt. You see, and China does this openly, while in the West, it's mostly covered up. And people like Snow has shown the extent to which the state and the tech companies are interrelated in the West, not only in China, so keep your eyes open.
0: And then zooming out to the bigger picture, so from your perspective, what kind of conversations we need to have in our, in our society and between different nations, for example, to ensure that we're on the right track in this, like, with these technologies? Yeah.
1: Uh, The first thing is not to believe that uh, digital technology is uh, a means that you don't have to make any decisions anymore. That's like the digital assistant way. So uh, quite a few people think they can lean back, put their legs up, and just let um, the uh, digital assistant decide. Where you go to which restaurant you go and uh, daily decisions, and Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO, uh, told us that he thinks uh, the best thing is that people should enter questions into Google. So, what should I do today? Uh, what a uh, job should I uh, take and? Uh, and then Google gives them the answer. And a few years later, he had an even greater idea. Namely, people shouldn't even uh, enter questions, but just wait what Google tells them. So that's a life where think- tech companies run our lives. That's the the, the imagination. And you can see why they want to do this. Or Metaverse is, is another way. That we should all uh, enter Zuckerberg's uh, metaverse, including all companies, and do our businesses there, so uh, that uh, one uh, large corporation can dominate our lives. So, if you if you want to have that, yeah, then fine. Huh? But if you want to make your decisions yourself, mm-hmm. um and avoid being the only one left out, then uh, we need to think about what we are doing and not just letting it run. Mm.
0: So what surprises and discoveries in your research for your book, how to stay smart in a Smart, smart world, really impacted you and stuck in your mind?
1: So, the, uh, I had lots of fun writing the book. For instance, mm-hmm. the uh, one chapter is about online dating. <laughs> and, and I was contacting online dating agencies to find out how many customs they, they have, uh, how what the success rate is, how they measure it, and so on, and you won't believe it. They... they, they, they uh, are not giving away any information, mm. so I did the research myself, and I found that the success rate in most of the online dating—I am not talking—I am now talking about this so-called serious online dating, where where algorithms are involved that compare profiles and calculate mm. which match with yeah. what. So the success rate of these love algorithms is about five percent in one year so if you pay for a year some hundred dollars and then yeah afterwards about five out of hundred found their partner 95 didn't find so hmm. okay, yes so you, you may have to pay for 10 years and then yeah you have a 50 50 chance roughly and uh Uh, But more interesting is how these algorithms, even if not very successful, and a number of studies have shown that if you just enter a chat room and meet people who have your own interests, your chances finding the one is as big as you pay for a uh, for the services of a love algorithm. So, mm. but more interesting, what it does to the people, how they change it. For instance, uh, the the availability of so many options uh, has changed the quite a few people's way they conduct uh, the. Uh, search and also the uh, how, how they d- deal with people once one is uh, ever more people get uh, become optimizers so that means that they continue searching there is always the idea there might be someone better out there mm-hmm. mm. and even if they would meet the best person they wouldn't know it and go and search for someone else and that's the end of a relationship of trust. It's just like a market. (laughs) And uh, so that's another example of how we adapt to the possibilities and how it changes us. And so there are, uh, during the research, uh, I found so quite a number of uh, things that are interesting for the general public. So take take self-driving cars. So I I worked with people who built self-driving cars. And and actually they're building autonomous cars because self-driving cars will not be around during our lifetimes. Mm. So a self-driving car is a so-called level five car. Uh, that's according to the yeah, the society of uh, automotive um, whatever the name is <laughs> uh, the um so that's a car the self-driving car is a is a car that can drive without a human paying attention safely in every possible yeah, uh, condition of traffic and uh, this is level five. Level one is uh, we have level one maybe 40 years, since 40 years, which is uh, just uh, say uh, a distance uh, uh, system that keeps uh, a distance to the next car. Level two is that we have uh, several systems together that work together and do for instance Uh, automatic parking, that's what our cars are. Level three would be a car uh, that can do everything that's needed for driving, but still needs a human to pay attention uh, and to be vigilant all the time. And level four is a car that can drive without humans, but only in limited places say highways or on airports Mm. that are protected and so uh, uh, although Elon Musk promises every year that next year there will be fully self-driving cars level 5, I predict he will stop doing making these predictions in a few years when he realizes that it's not possible and what will happen is something much more interesting, namely, level four. Mm. Uh, level five is just a gig yeah, that he could sit in a car and, and uh, read the newspaper. And, um, but level four will change all of us. Level four means that you need to adapt the environment and also us people so that these cars can drive safely. So we adapt to the limited possibilities of the cars. Mm -hmm. That means that probably cities will be built that have uh, streets where only autonomous cars are allowed to drive, and humans are no longer allowed, because that's the greatest Mm problem. Because human drivers, they create uncertainty. And that's, and AI functions best if everything is regulated and controlled and predictable. So we need to eliminate humans from the streets and all pedestrians and bikes and everything Mm -hmm. else. And we need to rebuild the streets so that none of us living beings beings will ever uh, drive on these streets or cross it. So that will really change. Our architecture, our city planning, and us. In such a world, it may well happen that people at some point will not be allowed anywhere to drive cars in order to enable level four driving.
0: Wow, that sounds a little dystopian. Who would like to live in a place like this?
1: oh Galina just think for a moment Mm -hmm. just think for a moment uh, maybe uh, 20 years ahead I assume it would have happened and people would look back at these times where humans were allowed to thrive and to kill others hmm, on the streets and thousands and thousands and thousands every year what an inhumane life and now we have these smart level four cars and finally humans are no longer allowed to use cars which are actually weapons to kill us so that would be the perspective of the future already adapted to the possibilities of ai
0: oh yeah for sure yeah i agree with that so what would be your vision of the high tech sci-fi future? Do you have one?
1: So uh, my vision is one that we need to make people smart. Mm. So the attention is always on, on getting better uh, AI. Uh, we need to have people who understand the AI, who prevent it from being exploited by companies behind the AI, and who are also willing to take the remote control of their lives in their own hands. So that's what I mean with digital risk literacy. So digital risk literacy means understanding the potentials and risks of digital technologies and the determination to stay in charge in a world populated by algorithms. That's my vision.
0: Well, this has been really insightful and sobering discussion. So, what are you up to now, and what will be your next project?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm at the moment. I'm writing uh, on a book on the intelligence of intuition. So, intuition is the one thing that artificial intelligence doesn't know and or we don't know how to program it into it. And I have been, I've been writing a book uh, some time ago called Gut Feelings and uh, I'm basically doing an update of that and also based on a number of uh, papers I've written about that. So you may know that um, I think about intuition as an immensely, a unique human ability, and it's a kind of intelligence. While many people look down at it and confuse it with, yeah, with uh, an arbitrary, uh, the decisions of an arbitrary uh, politician, uh, or with a sixth sense, or God's voice, or something that all women have, we men also have intuition, and it's basically a, a, a form of intelligence that is based on years of experience, where we feel something, but we can't say why. So that's one project I'm working on, and it has much to do with the uh, AI problem. Because if we could make a machine have an intuition, then it, it wouldn't be make, it wouldn't do these these strange errors. It's done. So give you one example we have intuitions about language, we understand language, and the best natural language systems that we have today, like GPT-3 or BERT before, they can create language that reads great, but at the moment you ask a question that's not a routine question, Mm about something where you need to understand that the question makes no sense, and you can see that mm-hmm. even this high-powered system don't understand. Here's an example. and uh, So the example is from Douglas Hofstetter, the, who is very famous for his cult book, uh, Gödel-Escherbach, and uh, the, he recently uh, uh, you tested GPT-3, that's the state-of-art uh, natural language system, and he asked the following question. When was Egypt transported the second time across the Golden Gate Bridge? Oh. So every human would say, what a stupid nonsense question, mm. but the best language system, they find the answer, Namely, it was on November 16 of 2017. Hmm. What they do is they can only associate, they find correlations, something that is close to Egypt or the Golden Gate Bridge, and then they find something. So they don't understand that the question makes no sense and they also do not understand that the answer makes no sense. So if we can get, intuition, common sense into such systems, then it would really work and not just produce based on on huge amounts of text, something that uh, sounds similar to uh, what already existed. And that's the big challenge for AI. And it's not chess, it's intuition.
0: Oh, wow. Looking forward to reading that book when it's out. And in the meantime, can you tell our listeners where to find your work and also your book?
1: So uh, you just Google (laughs) my (laughs) name, uh, Gerhard Kikarinsa, and uh, if you want to find the how to stay smart, book that's very easily, you put it in How to Stay Smart in a Smart World and also you find other books I've written and uh, there are a number of, this is a popular book that everyone can understand and the popular books uh, they create more work to me than the scientific ones mm. uh, because you need to be right but also clear mm. so that everyone understands and you can't hide it behind words. And if intuition interests you, you can look up gut feelings. If uh, risk, uh, how to deal with risk in, uh, in in the world is of interest, you may look up my book, Risk Savvy. So Risk Savvy is about how to get smart, how to be able to understand uh, what information about health Is reliable, What is not. And uh, uh, many other useful things in the real world. And you'll find more. And if you want to know about my early career as a musician, then put in my name. And VW, Volkswagen, VW, Golf. This was the first one. And that's from a long time ago where I played in a band. And we did the first US TV ad for this car that Ooh. is now known as the RAPID. And uh, the, the TV ad was a hit, and so the car.
0: <laughs> so you directly contributed to the advertising industry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a good car.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It was a pleasure. And don't forget, read and have courage. That's the most important thing.